0: Uh, 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 uh. I'm Morgan And I'm Isabeau This is Womance A podcast about romance novels About fabric dyes About slavery About New Orleans culture Uh, About
1: the Underground Railroad About biscuits About bad friends About good friends About communities Most of all it's about that first thing Romance novels
0: And ourselves This week, for another Ice Warren Spectacular, we are covering Indigo
1: by Beverly Jenkins. You want to give us a plot summary? Sure, Indigo takes place in 1858. Our titular character Hester is a free black woman living in Michigan and she is a stop on the Underground Railroad. One night she takes in a family and a very wounded young man who goes by the amazing codename Black Daniel and we're off to the races. Black Daniel is an incredible conductor on the railroad. He's also very rude to her as his face de-swells from his beating. He reveals himself to be Incredibly handsome man. He also comes from money, as we learn, and he tells her that there's a spy in her community. And Who sold him out? who sold him out, but is also like operating in the community and selling others out. A couple of big things that loom large in the book, obviously slavery and the Underground Railroad, but especially the Fugitive Slave Act itself um, and the repercussions thereof. Black Daniel, whose name is really Galen or Galino, comes from an aristocratic New Orleans family, falls in love with Hester and spends an amazing amount of time in this book wooing her in various ways, which are great. They end up getting married pretty much halfway through, three quarters of the way through. And then the rest of the book is about finding the spy and freeing more people from bondage.
0: Hester, her father was a free man who sold himself into slavery in order to be with her mother. And then after she's born, her mom cuts off her fingertip to make her easily identifiable to her aunt, who's a free woman who lives in Michigan, who then purchases her out of slavery from the Carolinas, the Carolinas, where she was dyeing fabrics with indigo, which turned her feet and hands Purple.
1: Yep. So she wears gloves all the time. Yeah, because she doesn't like people to ask her about it.
0: She wears shoes all the time too, but everybody does that.
1: It's Michigan, and if you didn't wear shoes, (laughs) you'd have other problems.
0: All right. So now let's drop this book into its cultural context. Published in 1996. What were you doing in 1996? Not watching Braveheart. How old? Too young for that. You were too young to watch Braveheart. Yeah, I was nine. I was allowed to watch Braveheart. I couldn't watch the scary ending, though.
1: I was. We had it on uh, two VHSs. Because they're so long. Because they're so long. So you were nine? Mm Mm-hmm. Were you living in Wisconsin? Yep. We were living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. It was before we made our great trek north. What was I doing? Swimming in our neighbor's pool. Fritz and Kathy had a great pool that I got to swim in. My two older siblings were graduating from high school. Yeah.
0: 1996. Hell of a year. Was I? Was I? Nine. What grade is that? Second? Third? Third, multiplication tables. Yeah, because we moved after
1: fourth. So yeah, it would have been in third. Ooh, Mrs. Merendorf and Klein. We had two teachers. We had Mrs. Merendorf in the morning and we had Mrs. Klein in the afternoon. Klein was math. Merendorf was like language arts. Mrs. Merendorf cried a lot. Happy tears, sad tears. Reread the Thousand Paper Cranes book and she bawled. I remember that very clearly. <laughs> yeah, multiplication tables. Captain Planet was very big for me that year.
0: Captain Planet, very big. Was that Rainforest movie, Ferngully, Had that been released? Oh, yeah. Remember when we thought we could fix the planet and now we're just trying to buy one extra year? We were so hopeful. There was this (coughs) other show called...
1: Which would get us up to 71 more years. Dot saves the whales was very big for me. I also had this VHS tape. There was this show called Predator and it was just about predators. But instead of having them like kill the cute baby animal, they'd put the predator in context. And they're like, predators also have babies and they're not just mean and scary. They're great. I had the predator video for killer whales because I was deeply obsessed. That was also the the summer that I would have become obsessed with with titanic and uh the civil war mm. i knew a lot of stuff In the way that you do when you're a kid where you just like consume all of the facts that you can about something such a heady time yeah what were you doing in 1996 you were just like an infant <laughs> i was in kindergarten learning about you know
0: articulation shapes colors basic math i was in the advanced reading group nice felt good uh, felt good to be there yeah kindergarten move to a new
1: house oh that's exciting we'd already moved
0: that's a big We're scary deal house. you know when circle. you're like such a small person yeah i do know that's it for me what won the academy award let's talk about yes. <laughs> the
1: larger cultural context of 96 Braveheart won Best Picture. Nicolas Cage won Best Actor for Leaving Las Vegas. Susan Sarandon won Best Actress for Dead Man Walking. Kevin Spacey won Best Supporting for The Usual Suspects. Mira Servino won Best Supporting for Mighty Aphrodite. Don't watch it. Don't watch it. Emma Thompson won Best Adapted Screenplay for Sense and Sensibility. And here's the one that I love. Colors of the Wind won Best Song at the Academy Award that year. I think that's great. Oh, and Anne Frank Remembered won Best Documentary Picture. Oh, and sound editing went to Apollo 13. Apollo 13 won all those technical categories. Yeah, because it wasn't going to win anything else. No, it has a Criterion release now. That doesn't surprise me. Restoration also came out that year, which is that really terrible Robert Downey Jr. movie about the restoration of the English throne after (laughs) Oliver Cromwell. That movie is bonkers. I've never seen it. You would love it. (laughs) It's like straight. It's Bowling straight down your alley. (laughs) Is it pretty campy? Oh, my God. But it. Like, it doesn't know that it can't be <laughs> until halfway through. And I'm like, you hired Robert Downey Jr. And you didn't know this was a camp film? Oh, my God. It's so good. You would love it. You should definitely watch it.
0: Will do. I kind of was surprised that, like, with camp being the theme of the Met Gala, Met Gala this year, that people didn't seem to understand. Like, camp isn't, like, putting on a costume. Yeah, they didn't get it. No. Camp is uh, just
1: wearing it.
0: You know? Yeah. It's, like, embodying it. Yeah. yeah. It's, like, this is my outfit. This is my hair. Yeah.
1: Album of the year was Jagged Little Pill.
0: Oh, hell yeah.
1: Oh, uh, Song of the Year was Kiss from a Rose by Seal. What a
0: year! Best new artist. Do you know what that means? That means that's the year Batman Beyond came out. Yep. Is it Batman Beyond? Mm. Batman Forever? I think it's Batman Forever. The one with Nicole Kidman and Val Kilmer and Jim Carrey. You're right. That's Batman Forever. Yeah.
1: And yeah. Song of the Year, Kiss from a Rose. Best new artist, Hootie and the Blowfish. Congratulations
0: to Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> 1996. Would you like to sing a Hootie and the Blowfish
1: song? Do I know any? <laughs> We've got... I'm sure if I it like, like, came like on the hear, radio. I like, like hear Let one. her cry. That's oh, it. yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's yeah, them. Um, Walk right Put out on me. Just let her go. go. does she even, even want to know. Let her pain burp burp uh, yeah but i like singing that song on the radio darius rucker let her cry till the tears fall down like rain and if the sun comes up tomorrow let her be, oh, let her be. that was really good.
0: so there's a section of me singing for you to cut out again nick <laughs> stymieing my musical career yet again
1: again Ugh. And it is into this stew that we drop indigo.
0: So, this is not the first Beverly
1: Jenkins we've read on the show. Beverly Jenkins does have the best covers. The cover that I have is really boring, but part of the reason why I got it is because they don't have it in any of the Chicago Public Library branches. I have chosen to believe it's because people keep stealing it. Okay. I think that's fair because I was really shocked because this is one of her more popular titles. This is
0: like on every romance, like list. five romances you need to read list. Yeah, I was shocked that
1: the Chicago Public Library didn't have it.
0: TBH, when I picked up this book, I didn't have particularly high expectations, just Mm. because I loved The Other Beverly Jenkins we've read, and Mm -hmm. I've read Other Beverly Jenkins since then, and I Mm. really love her books. But I was like, in the context of The Other Ice Wines we've read, Mm -hmm. I was prepared for something, you know, kind of a a
1: slog. Mm -hmm. This was not a slog for me. No, for me neither. This read like a delicious high-speed chase.
0: It's as good as every i've read since then this is her third book this is the one i always hear about i wonder if that has to do with the strength of galen
1: our hero and hester
0: it feels like her voice and sense of direction was fully formed at this point mm-hmm. who initially published this book i have no sense of who published this version that you have it's so strange
1: It is a very strange
0: version i think it's avon there's a recipe in the back indigo mud recipe one of hester's and galen's favorite things to do together was making mud pies this is mud you can eat it's a dense brownie like caked covered with a thin layer of marshmallows and topped by an awesome chocolate icing that's delicious as a love scene indigo mud is quick and easy and should be made the day before it's served day before i can't live like that and it's also funny because it says discover beverly jenkins on kindle and every title is underlined as if it should be a hyperlink and then it says beverly jenkins is also on facebook and that's also would be hyperlinked that's so funny. Yeah, this is a very strange. This is kind of like they printed an ebook. Yeah, that's exactly what it. it feels like. Which is wild because this was an Avon publication. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Book publishing's weird. Book publishing is weird. God, we really picked a lot of historicals for Icewine.
1: Yeah. Should
0: we have thought that through? <laughs> it's a little late now. Yeah, I mean it is. Uh, if you give us money on Patreon, you can get it in our
1: comment box. <laughs> you can tell us if you think we should have thought this through a little bit harder a little bit harder it is interesting though the way that we structured ice wine was taking books from a particular period and then like choosing the lionesses in their field at the yeah, time yeah right so we have stephanie Lawrence, we have beverly jenkins daniel Steele, and debbie may comer other than that like throwing a nora roberts i'm like that's kind of that's kind of it we already did a nora roberts we already did a beverly jenkins but i've always wanted to read
0: indigo yeah and that's why i thought of it i liked the Last Beverly Jenkins we read, so I was into reading
1: more of it. Whereas, like, I wasn't super into Nora Roberts. Yeah, her murder book was tough. I've only read two Nora Roberts novels, and both of them have been weird and like making me uncomfortable. Yeah. Beverly (laughs) Jenkins is just a treat. It is. She is a treat. There is that
0: problem of not every woman can be a heroine. Yes. Because when there's a villainess in one of her books, they are villainesses. They are villainesses. But there is still like the whole spectrum, like the character of Jeanette, the Mm -hmm. Jill. Lover, she ends up being kind of an ally and kind of a pal and funny in her kind of meanness, her quippiness.
1: Yeah, I like, I think one of the strengths of Indigo, but Beverly Jenkins in general, is that she has fully fleshed characters who are operating authentically, both psychologically and culturally. And so, like, those things feel really well developed. And so, like, I can understand why, like, a particular female character who is. As a villain can come across that way but it's like she's never without total sympathy like the reasons are always given. yeah the to reason you. is always pretty explicit
0: pretty explicit but also nuanced and that it's personal to yeah. the character it's not doing something like silly like any woman in the situation would feel this way right <laughs> yeah or making like a monolith out of anyone
1: yeah and but it, her
0: villainesses are really villainy. Yeah, they're bad ladies. We Mm -hmm. get two good ones. We get Grandma Veda, Grandmaire, and what's the girl's name? Who marries poor Foster. Who marries poor Fosty. Janine, Mm -hmm. two real villainesses. Mm -hmm. So Grandma Veda is the matriarch of Galena's family. Mm Mm-hmm. And she raised her grandson as a slave until he came into his majority,
1: which is not something I knew an American could do. There were a lot. I learned a lot in this book. (laughs) For instance, as soon as you get into Michigan, you're free. So like if you're being transported with the person who owns you, as soon as you touch Michigan soil, you can leave. Yeah. But in New York, it's 90 days. Yeah. And like those kinds of details about how, speaking of not monolith, like how the states were operating. With yeah. the question of like freedom, even yeah. in the North, and like how deeply complicated it was, and then like the Fugitive Slave Act, like upends all of that.
0: Oh, holy shit, Isabel! Yeah, I know we were talking about twenty three of me the other day. Uh huh. Twenty three of me is having a hard time convincing black people to give their genetic material to anybody. Go figure. Yeah, I wonder why. And they released an ad. Oh, I saw this ad. Yeah, yes. of the black woman like frolicking with the white man
1: in. Uh, the Antebellum I South. South. I was like, learn who your ancestors are. Yeah. I'm like, fuck find you. your family's love story. And this book,
0: well, the reason it reminded me of it is the fact about Michigan comes up because one of the projects of the group in Michigan is to inform slaves once they get to the Michigan train station. You can walk off right now and you'll be free. And they find a slave woman who wants to do so with her two daughters. Yeah. And we discover that she's in a physical, relationship relationship with her master, who's described as a handsome man, not unlike the guy who would have appeared in the ad. However, Beverly Jenkins informs us in 1996 exactly why that's not a real relationship. And why like you can't have a real relationship. I'm going to take a hard line stance not to blow anybody's mind, but it's why you can't have a real relationship with your teacher. It's why you can't have a real relationship ever with your boss. It's why you can't have a real relationship with any kind of older family member. Certainly not. These are all coercive relationships
1: yeah and it, the idea that there's any kind of parody or choice and that it isn't coercion no. is so beautifully illustrated in this novel where it's like this book is like the slave owner says he loves her and she's like but you sold your sons and yeah. you would sell our daughter." he said I don't think of you that way it's like you think of the children the flesh of her flesh that way you fuck the flesh of your flesh exactly and so like yeah Bev Jenkins clear eyed she's like no this is clearly not a romantic relationship this is one of a power imbalance and like you know it's dealt with such nuance yeah. because like even this woman at the station with her two daughters in hand is crying like she's seizing her freedom but like you know it's a difficult decision yeah and it comes at an emotional cost and like she doesn't downplay any of that that yeah. it is it's not simply walking off to freedom right, right that it is complicated that relationships were complicated the idea that you would sell yourself into slavery to be with the woman that you loved and that she didn't speak to him for like weeks on end because she's like they could sell us apart any minute. Yeah. It's, you idiot. Yeah. This book I can't is believe so good.
0: 23 of me would do something that
1: dumb. I can. That's somebody like who clearly didn't think about it and it's like wouldn't it be romantic if you found out that like probably didn't have a person of
0: color or a woman in the writer's room. Certainly not. One.
1: They're like you know it's like Sally Hemmings is like a love story and it's like Oh no, people who talk about that? Yeah. Like Jefferson loved her and I'm like wrong word man. Yeah. And how would we know how Sally Hemings ever felt about him? Exactly. She wasn't writing that stuff down and if she was it was probably burned by someone but yeah it's like that kind of shit it's like isn't the Sally Hemings Jefferson story so romantic it's like no it's not it's tragic or the scene where the little girl is proud that her hands are becoming purple like her mom's and
0: how devastated her mother is by that that was a
1: breathtaking tragedy of a moment
0: yeah but none of it feels like and now I'm going to shoehorn this sad thing into the story like it's kind of just a part of the story that also happens to be like like a really exciting, sexy romance.
1: Yeah. And that the romance is also such part and parcel and it's like so well developed and so nicely maneuvered through the plot itself, which is also moving like big movers in history, like Beverly Jenkins is name dropping a ton of really important people. Yeah.
0: Yeah, So like the ways this book is um, similar to the other ice wines that we are reading is historic specificity about like big moments, big history And that the book is rooted and also motivated by that historical specificity. The other way that I think this is moving in a similar style to the other ice wines is that we have an older heroine Mm -hmm. who has made a choice to have a practical life. She's going to marry this man, Foster, and they've decided they're going to have like a celibate marriage, which is like crazy, crazy to think about, like that they wouldn't even have convenient
1: sex or like lonely night sex. Yeah. Or just like
0: Wednesdays. Handies every
1: once in a while. Well. <laughs> like, that that part of it felt, like, silly and weird. Foster's silly and weird, though.
0: Foster is silly and weird. She's a little silly and weird. Yeah. our heroine is. Hester. And kind of.
1: But even that is, like, explained because she's raised entirely by a maiden spinster aunt. But she kind of
0: also becomes self-aware that she's silly and weird. Yeah. And, like, yeah. that's
1: so nice. And, like, there's this wonderful move later where she's finally had penetrative sex with our hero. And he's like, well, you could be pregnant. That's why we have to get married. And then she, like, 100% didn't know that that's how... She just didn't think about it. But she also, like, literally didn't know. So then she goes to Aunt B yeah, and is like, I need to know how getting babies happens. I think she was surprised that it could happen the first time, is what she specifically says. Right. But, like, she doesn't really know anything about her body other than that she has a monthly course. And so then there's that lovely scene where she knocks on the door and she's like, I need you to tell me everything there is to know about being a woman. I
0: think it would have been helpful if the dialogue of that scene would have been written out because there might be some stuff that I could learn...
1: <laughs> like don't just like put it out
0: there and then like don't fade to black on that one it's funny, <laughs> like, you might have some facts that would
1: be helpful or super good facts <laughs> about being a woman and like I loved that it was too bad that it was fade to black but also that like Beverly Jenkins goes to the trouble of telling us that they spend the rest of the afternoon talking about it yeah it's like hours we have a
0: heroine who is older who has decided to take a path in life that is not safe centered on a partner or finding a partner or being married or reproduction or reproduction. And then romance finds her Mm -hmm. and she bakes the cookies. No, she doesn't bake she the doesn't cookies. Bake cookies. She maintains her like. I mean, she makes the cookies, and then she kind of takes on this persona of like a well-to-do. Like there is this transference that happens where she marries her billionaire boy, mm-hmm. who's going to now take care of her. And the housekeeper explains to her, like, you're going to have to find other stuff to do with your time besides like baking and cleaning and cooking because other people are going to take care of all that for you. Mm-hmm. So plan affair or something i found that to be a really helpful scene because it is kind of often that i think like well, what would i do with my time if i were a kept woman and it's like oh yeah philanthropy philanthropy you have like a lot of space in your day to take up like hobbies and like read and read i think maybe like the idea of like a transference is missing from a room of one's own Mm -hmm. but is like present and (laughs) indigo
1: (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. like what the shift is. I think that's a really good point, but also like the way in which this book deals with like the varying levels of class inside of race was yeah. so fascinating because like as a free woman living in Michigan, she owns her own house. She has her free papers and like things are tight. Yeah. But like she's not without means. Like she has an operational farm.
0: Yeah. And she has a community right. that is about kind of sustaining one another.
1: Right. And like, you know, getting each other through and then he comes in and uh, definitely billionaire boyfriend, but like it's not just like the difference in their actual capital it's that she's been marked by the indigo dye on her palms as like I will always be known to anyone who sees me without my gloves as a former slave and that is the chasm of our class I'm a former slave and you are not like she can't pass for
0: not it's not like she can put on like a fancy dress and appropriate
1: airs and suddenly seem like aristocracy right and that inside of wealth and race and class is then this idea of like how far are you removed from slavery itself and like that is another operation. Yeah and they how, always like,
0: talk about how many generations
1: removed from Africa you are right and how many generations removed from slavery you are and like how all of this is working inside of then class structure. Yes. Inside of a race structure which is already operating inside of the race structure between black and white. Yeah. Like it was amazing.
0: Yeah. There's such a social sphere like a real world World, historical world that's built through the facts that are presented.
1: Yeah. And like the difference between New Orleans free blacks versus like Michigan free blacks and like who's doing what in terms of like political freedom and like how the Underground Railroad is operating. And then like, you know, add in sexual mores. And boy, this book talked about shame in a way that I was fascinated by.
0: That's interesting because
1: shame isn't something that jumped out to me. Really? Yeah. There are two scenes that came out really strong with Hester in particular and part of the reason that she explains why she wants to have a celibate marriage with foster is because it's like one of complacency and also she's like afraid of love her father literally sold his freedom and then died in slavery for love so love as a project is already suspect and damaging and like erasure. And the other part of it comes out when she's like, I don't want to play into the stereotype of black women being insatiable and hypersexual. And like, if I have needs at all, like that's playing into that. I
0: don't remember that part. I remember the scene where she is sharing her family's story with Galen. I felt that the text and the way that she related the story did kind of have this appreciation like I don't think it problematized love or romance I think it showed that it could be a problem but I think it was still sort of isn't it romantic about it I think whenever she talks negatively she talks about the fact that her maiden aunt never got to express her affection for this guy because he was still married like that to her was foolishness the idea of being with someone who didn't want to be with you but I felt like her parents love story was very much in that like
1: isn't it romantic type and truly like that's intense there are a couple of places where she says stuff like proper women aren't supposed to enjoy this are they i
0: don't think that's tied up in race i thought that was just kind of like a general idea
1: but like she has an explicit part where she talks about it in terms of race
0: i'm interested in this idea of kind of looking at how being a proper woman is understood in this text and what function that's serving our heroine, Hester, she already does a lot of stuff outside of the norm. She lives by herself. She's a conductor on the Underground Railroad. She does a lot of things that put herself in mortal danger in order to further a political cause. The idea of like marriage is kind of... Secondary to all of her other projects, but she is concerned with this idea of chastity as um, part of being a proper woman, which I think is de rigueur for the day. One of the things that she finds fearful and kind of frightening is that Galen makes her feel kind of giddy and young, which is an experience she's had before because she's able to relate to it, but she's not super interested in that side of herself until she is. She decides, like, this is going to be my last chance to kind of have like a passion passionate sexual experience and she seeks it out but she does it kind of eyes wide open in a way that Galen does not in that he sees this as like a coming over as like her admitting her love for him which is true and wanting to seek out a longer term relationship where she sees it as a final opportunity and kind of a thing to get out of her system almost so that she can live without regret moving forward
1: yeah I think it's fascinating that she sees their physical relationship in just those Terms that you're saying, where it's like, this isn't building something new. This is like answering a question that she didn't know that she had, and now yeah. that she can put it away because, like, reproduction is not her project. Marriage yeah. is not her project. But, like, sexuality is so complicated in her envisioning of it because when they mm. do finally have sex, and he's like, well, now you have to marry me because, like, you might be pregnant. And then, like, they have this wedding, and then. <laughs> well,
0: the fact that she's pregnant is kind of secondary to her. She kind of feels like we'll cross that bridge if we come to it. Right. But I think, crucially, this idea of the proper woman is kind of creating this space like the traditional key mover in a historical romance which is a reason to be resistant to the hero so that you can be wooed over many chapters and she is not wooed by the idea that she might be pregnant she's a little frightened by it right? but he has to kind of set a trap for her in church to get her to marry him that has nothing to do with the fact that they've had premarital sex or she might be pregnant like the rumors would have existed even if she hadn't had sex with him because Janine had already started spreading those because
1: they walked in on Janine then, having sex. And did. The thing that I'm getting at about Hester's like conception of like this proper place of desire to live, it's always interesting, but then it becomes really weird and disassociative when they're married because like she starts doing this thing where she's like a wife wouldn't want this, but a mistress would. Uh-huh. And like that move where then they begin to like use it as a game and he's like is this my wife talking or my mistress Uh uh-huh and it was interesting to me because like a wife has different sleeping quarters yeah except she wants to sleep in bed with him and then she's like I guess I'll be your mistress
0: but that's like an idea around sexuality that I think was really like like it comes up in the Americans the idea that a wife should be a wife and a mistress was kind of a thing that was taking hold in the 80s and the 90s Yeah, the idea of being like a wife and a mistress, that being a dichotomy is not something that if it did exist historically, it was an idea of like, it's a literal dichotomy. It's two separate people and it must be. Whereas I think during this time period that Beverly Jenkins is writing in, 1996, it's more of an idea of how you can be like everything to everyone as a woman. It's not enough to be like the person that you are. You must inhabit these different identities. Like you can't just be yourself, which I think is how we would understand it now where you have to like find someone who is like personally sexually compatible with you who you feel comfortable expressing yourself in that way with and you will also feel comfortable like sharing the formations of a life together you have to inhabit roles and specific identities like wife like now I have to be wife now I have to be lover now I have to be philanthropist like who you were was less about like a personal experience and more about a series of roles that you would fulfill and that you would choose
1: Yeah, this like very specific wearing of hats and like how hats are marshaled. I think is interesting and that like that clearly like those borders don't exist as you say we understand it as like your whole self now versus like, well, this is my wife hat. My wife hat does this, like goes to church, and this is my mistress hat. My mistress yeah. hat gives blowjobs and like this yeah. is my whatever other This hat. is what I
0: wear when I want to go to sleep. This is what I wear when I wanna have sex while I'm pretending like I'm trying to go to
1: sleep. Yeah. It was interesting to me that they both began this like dichotomy discussion.
0: He doesn't have a dichotomy discussion although he's literally living a double life. Literally. He is understood completely as this Whole. single person yeah. yeah, who just happens to have a hobby where he steals <laughs> slaves yeah. and brings them into Freedom. the North. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean all of it. I just really love this book. Yeah. I really love Galen and I think the fact that like he accepts that she's really compartmentalized so much of her life in really particular ways. This is the the sphere I operate in class-wise. This is the sphere I operate in because I'm a dark-skinned black woman. This is the sphere that I operate in here in Michigan these are the circles I operate in because I'm a woman like these are the things I can do because I'm a woman these are the things that I can't do because of where womanhood is and like how she circumnavigates those what feel earnestly to her like strict boundaries but then like they aren't like there are moments where she takes on like these really dangerous roles like when she allows herself to take the place of her neighbor in the jail cell that's gonna about to be transported back to the south yeah and like that's a really dangerous situation there's that terrible slave catcher who's like gonna like rape her shoo. yeah shoo and like, it's so clearly she's like, I could only do this because I was a woman and could pass pretending to be this other woman. And like the way in which womanhood then is marshaled very specifically to like help somebody else out because of, you know, the fair sex or whatever. And I like those moments where gender comes up like that are really interesting to me in the book.
0: To be honest, I feel like prior to her marrying Galen, she is a whole self. I think she compartmentalizes trauma and man- Manages it from her past mm-hmm. in a specific way that allows her to like do her project which as we've said is not about getting married is not about reproduction is about something you know larger than her individual self mm-hmm. and larger than her individual community right once
1: she is married she is filling roles mm-hmm. but like that's what's so interesting to me about it because like these are roles and expectations she understands but like haven't necessarily been like explicitly communicated to her like she's the one that decides that like wives don't sleep with their husbands right and like this has been communicated to her however even though she's like lived with a spinster aunt and like he's the one who's like no it doesn't have to be that way and she's like well that's what mistresses do and like it's weird how like labels that she's I guess, kind of inherited, mm-hmm. like come into play in ways that they didn't before. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the things that's so fascinating about this book because like, it's like a renegotiation.
0: Once she's married, her identity is ruptured. Like her day yeah. is different. There's that question of what do you do and people being like, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, like when you get to work, what do you do? Like, mm-hmm. what does a day look like for you? Also, you know, and the idea of like, post-labor, post-capitalism. The idea of, like, you don't say, what do you want to do? You say, what does your day look like? What kind of day do you want to have most of the time? Mm-hmm. Because that's really what makes up a life. And the shape of her day is just ruptured. Like, she's not cooking. She's not she's getting not up cleaning. as early. She doesn't have to get up early. She had a whole identity, and that's ripped from her, I think. And it is
1: ripped. Like Totally. She he gets- tricks her into a marriage and yeah. fucking church.
0: Yeah, that's ripped from her. And so I think her solution is to follow patterns Mm -hmm. and fulfill roles. But I think that's like an expectation of women in general.
1: For sure. I think what I found deeply interesting about that is that she didn't have like an intimate view of what those roles looked like like she didn't hang out with a ton of married people her aunt was a spinster her closest neighbor was living by himself this is a community of like people who are also doing very different things like the idea that she thought she could enter into a celibate marriage with foster like had never had a sensual experience like after her aunt died like she wasn't even being hugged and like that it felt so good just to be touched again yeah was so interesting so then the marriage really roles would be so well defined that even if you're like not existing in a community that has them so rigidly like you would still internalize it as rigidly as Hester did was fascinating to well, me.
0: Well, she's around a lot of married people and like a very like conservative church going. Yeah. Historically accurate idea of marriage is all around her all the time.
1: But like a lot of those marriages have either been ruptured because of slavery or like they're operating in like different ways. And so, yeah, the church is very conservative. But I think like the messages that she's getting about marriage itself are like strange to me. Or like
0: cultural narratives as opposed to like actual practices right or practices that she would have seen or participated in she wouldn't have because she did live with her unmarried aunt right but she was around lots and lots of
1: married people right but like didn't have like an intimate view of what was happening is yeah the yeah point. so like the fact that she like had such a rigid understanding was fascinating well, I also if you
0: only see like
1: the public performance of marriage and then only hear about marriage in the church very specifically and like that's the other thing too where like this like celibate marriage that she and Foster, like, come up with is so interesting. And then in the church scene, when Galen tricks her into marriage and the preacher is doing the fire and brimstone Old Testament, fornicators will be punished. And then Galen comes out with, like, the sexiest part of the Song of Solomon and is like, you know, your hips are wide and fruitful and, like, I will drink of your navel. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's in the Bible too. I always forget that, that it's so sexy and that, like, he's just (laughs) it's quoting it at church it was like one of those moments where i'm like yeah that book can be sexy the bible or the song of solomon yeah the songs the psalms yeah but like that particular part of the bible is very sexy and the fact that he quotes it in church is like a way to get her down the aisle is like good reminder
0: I think the idea of portraying a role is really interesting as far as like how the romance of this book is functioning. That is like one of her barriers just being with Galen is that she will not be able to perform the role because of her hands Mm -hmm. being stained as we discussed earlier. I think that's why that idea of like a proper woman is so interesting because her like understanding of a proper woman is so Personalized and depersonalized because Mm -hmm. I think she understands herself as a proper woman, but kind of also self-regulates and edits behaviors in a way that's based on a, a social narrative.
1: Totally. And like, I think that's a really good example where it's like Galen needs to marry a proper woman who can move in the circles that Galen moves in. And like, she doesn't fit that definition of proper because of her hands, but in like every other way she is. I think she knows herself to
0: be a proper woman. That is something different from being a proper woman.
1: But like, that's how like proper for Galen right like this role fulfilling appropriate for Galen
0: because her friend B says men like that don't marry women like us right and once that clarified for her and she kind of said you know of course I've always understood that I think that even is based on like a social narrative and I guess this book is just so saturated in like social understandings and structures that is also kind of being marshaled through the Fugitive Slave Act and the different laws that kind of became state by state piecemeal more and more baroque as the country got closer and closer to civil wars I think that's an interesting parallel I think so too the actual stated laws that are shared explicitly throughout the book along with these like social laws that are (laughs) unstated that are also stated in the book but kind of not written anywhere right and are just kind of being interpreted her understanding of a marriage is very different from what an actual marriage is because she's only seen the public performance of it right whereas is like as Rashu understands the fugitive slave act as this more like amorphous thing where like anyone who fits a super vague description of a slave can count as that slave and I can take them back and make money off of it as opposed to like what the law was explicitly stating but
1: like there again like and I think like that's such a perfect illumination of what we're talking about where it's like the law is like written explicitly but the way in which that it's written explicitly is so fucking vague as to be like stupid yeah right and so like and it not actually a rule right and like the fact that like you can test the idea that you are this slave, that the slave catcher is caught, but like the court gets like ten dollars if you are transported back and five if you win. Yeah. So it's like it's like that kind of shit. Yeah. Where the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Yeah. And like the letter and the spirit of this law were just fuck all. Yeah. And like Ezra Shu knows that. But then like that's so interesting because then like questions about like using the law to have help martial freedom is like so clearly an untenable project and then like this question of like armed conflict yeah. is going to be the way that we have to do this and like the two yes. camps that come through in terms of the politics the problems of the
0: book are all resolved through like sweeping big gestures like there's nothing subtle about the way he gets her to marry him no and there's nothing subtle about the way they get rid of the Ezra Shue problem either no ultimately like dealing with it doesn't resolve anything like Mm -hmm. getting by is not what fixes problems in this book
1: no and I think like that's a fascinating statement and like a good one one of the things that I also loved about this book I love so much about this book was his seduction of her is like he's using the secret passageways in her house to like come up to her bedroom and like hang out with her which is like weird and illicit. He's like using the house sort of against her because she's like she doesn't invite him but she never like disinvites him either. Yeah, I would say that's my weirdest part of the book. That he just like keeps showing up. So she shares with
0: him the secret passages in the house for his own safety Mm -hmm. and then he uses that to violate her own agency. Yeah. In her own home. I mean, that's how I read it. I wasn't like, oh, it's so sweet that he's like sneaking in through the trapdoors. he knows are there and like watching her sleep and then putting a rose in her bed. I know that I was supposed to understand it, but to me, I was so horrified, like sharing something with someone and then them using it towards their own ends. That is so icky feeling to me.
1: Yeah, I felt that way the first couple of times. And then like the fact that the book wants me to like it. I just like eventually wore it, was worn down and like got on the train of him being a weird sneak sneak and her liking it and the fact that like she never disinvites him but like is like explicitly not inviting him either is really weird and then like the tricking her into the marriage was something that I didn't like but also so weird weird thing I noticed she has six orgasms before he has one That's a weird thing. That's a weird thing I noticed.
0: I think that's been happening like in Devil's Bride, she has a lot of orgasms mm -hmm. before he ever has one. In No Greater Love, she has zero orgasms. Zero. Until (laughs) until the one mutual one. Space of years there. Yeah, there seems to be like a lot of hand stuff in these books. Mm -hmm. I think there's mouth stuff in this one. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm interested in the fact that like in the contemporary romances, it's like they do hand stuff, but then they go straight to mouth stuff Mm -hmm. if they don't like jump right into what did we call it? Potentially reproductive fornication. Yes, potentially reproductive. <laughs> PRF before they jump right into that. Whereas like, I feel like there's like a lot
1: of hand stuff in these ice wines. There's so much hand stuff in these ice wines. And it's like hands all over too. Like the is a real So much canvas. nipple stuff. Yeah, there's a ton of nipple stuff so in this So much book. nipple stuff in this book, but also in the other ones we've read. Yeah, and that's what I mean where it's like- Nipples
0: get a lot of play in the 90s.
1: Yeah, you always see the nipples like do something before they're actually played with it's like oh it's cold in here oh I'm aroused or it's like your nipples are points it's just like it's so I'm gonna take off your gossamer chemise and like reveal your pointy nipples
0: one of the things I really liked about this book was that we had a heroine who wasn't like evisceratingly beautiful but she didn't realize it Mm -hmm. like I think she understood herself as a beautiful woman and her hero understands her as a beautiful woman but it's not everyone who appreciates what she looks like and that fixes a lot of problems for me. But also the fact that she's like trying to get by. I mean she has like a billionaire boyfriend but it's still very much a part of her life that this novel depicts her like getting by without creating like some sort of like let me get out the world's smallest violin. Like she's getting by. Yeah. Whereas I think oftentimes romance novels if they have like an impoverished character it's like the fact that they do without food is like whereas like with her it's like a really conscious decision. It's something that she's used to doing. Like it It doesn't make her seem like a victim
1: no this book is really invested in hester never seeming that way and i love that about it but also like she lives alone but she's not alone and she's not lonely her community is never gonna let her starve like there's not a scenario she's never desperate right you're right she's never desperate that's such a nice thing i think we see a lot of our heroines in real, like, desperate situations.
0: Or, like, whenever her former fiancé, Foster, understands her to sell her land as, like, a really big deal. And she's kind of like, you know what? I let it go. It's fine. It's over. And then when Foster tries to buy more land from her, she's like, I'm not going to sell to you because I just don't want to. Like, yeah, you he's were like, kind of a jerk. Yeah, and he's
1: like, you need the money and, like, you're blah, blah, blah. I thought he was going to be the... I did too the
0: mole what a good red herring I was really surprised by who the traitor ended up being me too And how it was revealed. The mystery was really good in this book and genuinely mysterious.
1: And genuinely like scary. Yeah. You know, and what was really interesting to me was when he shows up as Black Daniel and he's like, You got a spy in your community. And she's like, No, we don't. You don't know the people here. And I was like, Maybe they don't, maybe it's like in a different community. And like, she seems to know everybody here. And like, okay. Yeah.
0: I feel like the book did a great job of keeping the reader in the heroine's perspective as far as the mystery went, where initially you're like deeply skeptical along with her that it would be anyone in the community and then like you have a lot of anxiety around who it could be in the community mm-hmm. once it becomes obvious and and then you're totally blindsided maybe not everyone was totally blindsided by who it was but I was I was too no I question. was shocked and it's such a devastating like Beverly Jenkins is this great thing about like having really heavy stuff that is never unearned because it's historical fact mm-hmm. that also never makes the book feel like a chore Like the angst is never like something I have to pull myself through to get to the happy parts. Like it's just another part of the story that's crucial and develops characters and develops the story in a way that's interesting. It's not just like, and then the horses were screaming also. And then there was thunder, you know, like it's always like the carriage
1: crashed and then the wolves came, you know? Yeah, Beverly Jenkins, the stakes are always just right. And I think like, especially when we're talking about like the years slavery leading up to the civil war and slavery and the fugitive slave act like these are really intense stakes life and death and all that and like the fact that it isn't a slog or overbearing it's so rooted deeply in its humanness and like that we are so deep in hester's perspective and like we watch her grow and change and adapt and that we've always understood her as an adaptable person and that she's in a community and like that the community is fully fledged and has like a little bit of backstory like the sheriff and like you know the fact that he was best friends with Hester's dad before he sold himself into slavery and like that's why he feels like trapped by this stupid law but like I just love that Hester's alone but not lonely that like the the stakes are high the name drops are all you know really big you like like the big historical facts
0: I like you've enjoyed that about this project about the ice wines I liked
1: it better in this one because it it is the fabric of the book versus like Uh, this one did
0: it best
1: yeah but I'm asking like do you like it in all of them no I don't like it in all of them
0: Which one did you not like it in? You've talked about how much you liked it in both of the other historicals.
1: Yeah, but I mean, like, in terms of, like, how it's actually working, where it's, like, it doesn't... I like learning about it, so I always like it. Yeah. But in relation to how it, like, functions as a part of the book, like, this one does it best, hands down. Like, Stephanie Lawrence, like, I was interested to learn about Mourning and the Ton, but, like could have done without I mean I like the historical details but they weren't in service to the story and like devil's
0: this- bride it was in service to the story it controlled how they were moving and how she ended up taking on the role of duchess because everyone else was grieving and how she was able
1: to I mean some work of it but you solving didn't- the
0: mystery because she wasn't in as deep mourning as everyone else
1: and- yeah some of it but like you didn't we didn't need all of it like the mourning detail and like the difference between the phaetons and like the wheel heights like I didn't- yeah yeah and then it's like that's
0: just it feels pettier than what's going on in Indigo.
1: It feels indulgent rather than like paste specific and baked in.
0: Do you think all of the historical details in Indigo are necessary to the story?
1: No, but I can't really point to one that I feel like is too big, you know, like where it, like it took me out of the story. And I think like that's the difference. Okay. It's like there were times in Stephanie Lawrence and Daniel Steele where it's like this historical aside. Yeah. Dan- Daniel brutal. Steele feels like two separate books. Books.
0: Yeah. Whenever it's talking about No Greater Love feels like two separate books whenever it's
1: historical research time. Right. And I think if that's the difference between an aside and like a detour.
0: Yeah. Whenever and like- it takes you out of the story. Yeah. That's a good that's a good measurement to have. It's a good measurement. What was your weirdest part of indigo?
1: Foster. Foster. Do you yeah. want to talk about that more? Sure. Foster, nerdy academic goes to England to be educated comes back with a wife after being engaged to Hester so that's number one weird and then it's like everything about him continues to get weirder like it was hard for me to like fully understand his character Yeah, and the fact that like he zigzags so strongly between like nerdy academic very cerebral then to like angry petulant really undeveloped immature especially in comparison to Galen especially but like other dudes that we meet in the book I was wasn't surprised I guess that he was so bamboozled by the woman that he married but like I was surprised that he was so uncaring of Hester. Yeah. It's like you were gonna marry this woman like why are you being so mean to her? Yeah, that was my weirdest part that like he could have agreed to marry someone and then treat her so badly. So you think
0: that character is weird just like yeah what's the weirdest part of the book the part of the book that you had the hardest time with reconciling because like if you dislike foster
1: you're doing what the book wants you to do and like i did i did dislike him but like when he showed up without telling her that he'd gotten married that felt weird right it's supposed to yeah but like i guess yeah in the same way that hester is like really floored I was floored. Yeah. So that was weird.
0: So there weren't any like parts of the book that were like difficult?
1: I mean slavery.
0: No, like difficult, not because the text wants them to be difficult, but that Janine. Okay. You wanna talk
1: about that more? I mean, sure, like Foster's wife, Janine, turns out to be a terrible person, which you know, you saw coming a mile away. It's just like too bad that it was so obvious and that she was so terrible.
0: obvious that she was going to be a bad
1: person oh really
0: yeah I thought she was just going to be like kind of even when they walked in on her having sex and she was like a woman has needs Mm -hmm. I was like yeah you know maybe like foster just isn't hitting it you know and like that's tough and I was like maybe she really loves him he's just not delivering on this particular aspect of their relationship which is not a part of the relationship he ever planned on delivering with Hester anyways Mm -hmm. so yeah I was pretty surprised by how bad She ended up being. Mm -hmm. Well, like we said earlier, like the villainesses are like real villains. Yeah, she's a real villain. And you had a hard time with that?
1: Well, I mean,. So when they caught her in the schoolhouse, and then she's like immediately turns and she's like, "I'm gonna spread rumors about you if you tell on me," and like this like blackmail move. I was like, "Ooh, she's gonna tell no matter what." So like shit's about to go down, and then like that's what happened. And I was like, "Okay." And then there's this part it's a little bit earlier where Foster is like about to ask Hester about like women's fears around sex, and like he's interrupted. Yeah. So like I understood that they weren't happy having sex because she didn't want to mm-hmm. not that he didn't right so then when they're having sex in the schoolhouse I was like oh okay now I understand that she's like a liar
0: were you frustrated by I guess the fact that Janine's kind of one-dimensional
1: yeah and like I think it would have been easy to like just like give her even half a dimension more there's so many ways that that could have been different there's that great scene in the carriage where she
0: says something about like why wouldn't you live as a white person like why would you want to be a part of the race mm-hmm. which is like a really heavy question it really sucks the air out of the carriage and makes everyone like Oops. we all have had that experience of someone saying something really off color and kind of taking the air out of the room and I feel like that would have been like a really interesting place to kind of let some deeper psyche of Janine take root beyond the fact that like she doesn't want to suffer which I think we can all appreciate Mm -hmm. but like her particular modus operandi is
1: really hard to justify outside of she's a bad person right or she's like selfish like she's in it for like number one because like nobody else is
0: yeah she's like it's irredeemable the way she goes about things right and I was like that's too bad what's the sexiest part for you
1: oh god there were so many sexy parts I love Galen I love Hester and Galen I love all of his pet names for her I love that he has I guess the first time that he he goes down on her I thought that was probably my sexiest bit
0: um the sex scenes are really good they're so good Oh, I, I guess the one in the carriage is my favorite I really like that it's kind of unexpected and it just kind of develops and happens organically there's not like a very special episode of Beverly Hills 90210 set up to the sex scene which I think we've seen a lot of in the Icewine series but <laughs> it just kind of they have a good time together and then continue to have a good time together and I also like the idea of like a car Sex scene in a historical. That was really interesting. Womance or a romance. Womance. man. Womance. For sure a woman. For sure a romance. Maybe like the first like full-throated romance of the Ice Wine series
1: for me. Probably the only one. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, and I think like in so many ways, like reading the Ice Wines, and I'm so glad that we did Beverly Jenkins. Watching the project of like trying to like work through the culture wars through what the 90s were like what the 90s were like in romance but Um, also
0: in just like ideas of motherhood and womanhood being
1: so inextricably tied together and like we're
0: in like this moment where we're asking are they inextricably tied together and why are they and how are they
1: and like yeah the ice wines really decided that like well they are and this is like biological destiny or fate or yeah whatever. yeah and it's like,
0: not until like 2001 that oprah has someone come on and say self-care matters yeah and like in that way like this novel
1: feels like more nuanced and like has a depth to it
0: the idea of like the pre-wifehood mm-hmm has a depth to it that allows the post wifehood to be more individualistic
1: yeah and that like she's not a tragedy before and she's not empty like she is a full person before galen enters her life yes she would have been just fine without him
0: well what's so interesting is that all of these women have had a purpose and a direction before a man enters their lives Indigo is the only book that our heroine maintains her purpose mm-hmm. and her direction after getting married. Mm-hmm. Do you want to revisit the thing about stereotypes and shame? Did you find the
1: thing you were looking I for? I couldn't find it, so. Okay. I mean, ideally, because I thought it was fascinating to deal with. Like with the the inheritance of what that stereotype of shame around sexuality, and then have someone like work through that so corporeally.
0: Well, I think like working through shame and sexuality is something that happens quite often mm-hmm. in romance. It's interesting if it's racialized. I don't recall that happening in this book, so I was wondering if you found that passage that did so.
1: I didn't, but I know it's in there because I remember being like, "Holy shit!" I hope you find it. All right, anything else? Beverly Jenkins. Everybody should read her.
0: Yeah, this is really good. I mean, it makes sense why it's on all of the, like, must-read romance books. The only other book from this era that we've read that I can think of that's on those lists like that is Beast. And Beast is a bit of a beast as far as (laughs) polarizing the hosts of this show. But Indigo is one we can both enjoy. Yeah, liminal spaces. (laughs) Uh, No liminal spaces in Indigo. Just small town... Michigan. Small town Michigan stuff. With that, loosen your stays. Never your principles. Indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzac. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well cheer up Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listing app. Until next week.